Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. As more Australians are being vaccinated against COVID-19, we are becoming more aware of the thrombosis and thrombocytopenia syndrome, which is a rare complication of the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. But how can GPs diagnose TTS? Associate Professor Nigel Crawford provides us with an approach. Professor Crawford, tell us about yourself. My name is um, Nigel Crawford and I'm the Clinical Director of SAFIC, which is the Victorian Vaccine Safety Service, uh, which was established in, in 2007. So I had a long sort of background in, in vaccine safety. Nigel, today's topic is the AstraZeneca clots. Uh, the question is, are we missing it, uh, especially as GPs? So let's start with the first question. What are some of the clinical features of thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome? So I think the key thing here is that it, it's those two things in combination. So it's not just the thrombosis, it's, it's thrombocytopenia, which may evolve um, over time. So in terms of the presentation, that can vary depending on the site of the thrombosis. So um, that's been now broken down into, into two levels, which we're calling tier one or unusual sites of thrombosis, which includes central venous sinus thrombosis, which will obviously have neurological presentations, also abdominal or splanchnic circulation, and other unusual sites of thrombosis is what we're calling tier one. And then there's tier two, which are more the standard sites, which we'd all be aware of in terms of deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolus associated with low platelets or thrombocytopenia is the other sites. So yeah, it's really the site of the thrombosis, which is the main drive of the presentation. More rarely, those lay platelets may have obviously some um, bruising or bleeding of the gums or nose, but it's really the thrombosis is the key thing in terms of the, the, um, the presentation. Do these features vary as well um, in severity apart from the sites? Yeah, so that tier one, you know, we really do believe um, does impact on that severity. And that's why it's important when we look at the, the cases internationally and here in Australia, what proportion are in that, that tier one group? Because certainly the central venous sinus thrombosis is a serious neurological presentation. It can be a little bit difficult to pick up initially because the headaches might just be a bit unusual, but they, they start and persist for more than 48 hours, you know, following the vaccination and may become more severe and may have some later on some red flag signs. So that location can be difficult to pick up, certainly in the first instance. And also the abdominal splanchnic vessels, it can be a bit more non-specific in terms of that abdominal pain, which then may progress um, over time. So yeah, thinking of these unusual locations is, is one thing. And then, as I, as I mentioned before, that the DVT and PE in terms of, you know, pain in the limb, swelling of that leg or chest pain or increased work of um, breathing. And then, you know, presentation with, with a pulmonary embolus is something that need to be alert to. But yeah, thinking of those different sites is, is um, important. And those tier ones definitely more severe. Is it possible for me to direct your attention to those two sites uh, in the brain and in the gut? Because they are unusual, uh, and the problem is that headaches and abdominal pain are not unusual. As GPs, what should we be looking out for? Yeah, it's a really good question, David. So really, it's it's the time window, which we sort of touched on before, but it's that window of four days to around 30 days post the vaccines when the majority of these cases have presented. So if someone presented um, with an unusual headache that maybe started within that first sort of standard 48 to 72 hour window, which we've seen obviously with, with all of the COVID-19 vaccines, it had symptoms within that early window. But if they're persisting on into that day four, five period, 
they're not settling with usual analgesia. And then obviously, as I mentioned before, some of those secondary signs in terms of change in vision or other issues may present later on, but it's more sort of being aware of the window of when this might present early on and then have a, a low threshold for thinking about you need to do further investigations. And, and same with the splanchnic, it's unusual um, abdominal pain, maybe in the back initially, but accompanied with you know, sometimes nausea and vomiting and persisting. So it comes on that day four or five post the vaccine and persists on warrants further uh, investigation. I think you're quite right, isn't it? Is this really requiring a very, very low threshold to, if you like, prompt us to do things? And so really, um, this critical question is, when did you get your vaccination? It can make all the difference. Yeah, no, exactly. So it's really being aware of that window and then acknowledging some people will present and be worried with symptoms because they've heard about this um, syndrome. So you're right, this is a common presentation to primary care and, and GPs and very experienced in, you know, ascertaining, you know, some of that background history and, and other features of, of your patients. But yeah, having a low threshold within that 40, sorry, four days to 30 days, um, sometimes even out to, to 42 days or six weeks post the vaccine. But yeah, more, more conscious in that that first um, few weeks post the vaccine when we've seen the majority of cases to be alert, to think, you know, is this related to thrombosis with thrombocytopenia and, and do I need to do some more investigations to, to look into that? Just to give us a sense of the issue, does it present differently by age or sex? And has it been reported following the second dose of the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine? So the initial reports that came out of Europe when we first heard about this syndrome was in, in younger um, people in their 30s to early 40s and predominantly in female. Initially, we thought that might have just been the program because they were targeting healthcare workers you know, in Europe at that time. But we've since seen from both the international data, particularly the United Kingdom, which weekly reports its um, TTS cases, that there certainly have been quite a number of cases in younger people and particularly more of those tier one or the most severe unusual site so you know definitely we're getting um, a picture that this is more severe in in younger age groups and and therefore you know countries have have taken positions in terms of the age recommendations so for example the uk initially chose 30 but it's now 40 years of age there's a preferences for a, a an mrna vaccine in in the uk and australia now moved to 60 so that's um you know increase risk of of the both the number of cases but also the severity are the driver of some of those decisions. In terms of the dose two, there's actually been very few cases with dose two. Again, obviously Australia hasn't, it's only just starting its, its dose two AstraZeneca, but the UK has now given over 17 million doses and they've had 27 cases of TTS. Again, we haven't got the full breakdown of that data, but we believe majority of them are, you know, felt to not be as, as severe. Again, their program's running a little bit different to Australia, but certainly we're, we're comfortable that this appears to be a dose one phenomenon or immune mediator, which is what we, mm-hmm tend to see with these conditions. If you have it for the, see the, the antigen for the first time, it might trigger off an immune system, which is you know what people are calling the vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia with thrombosis so um, or VIT. So dose two, something very closely monitoring, but at this stage, very few cases in the UK and obviously Paul Kelly and the Chief Medical Office and others you know, strongly supporting the dose two administration in Australia on, on the basis of those, um, those results to date. Nigel, do you have a sense of the numbers uh, of uh, people over the age of 60 who have received the first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine who might have ended up with one of these tier one uh, thrombosis? Yeah, so if you look on the um, TGA website, they I can send, send the link um, to you, David. They actually good. tabulate um, the number of confirmed and probable cases by this tier one, two 
categorization for, for the 60 to 60, and this is done by 10 year age bracket. So for example, in the 60 to 69 year old age group, they've had 11 cases, four of which have been tier one, three of which have been two, tier two, and then four, which is sort of unclassified or they're trying to determine. So there has been a spectrum of, of the, the different cases over age and particularly in the you know under 50 of the um, six cases, five of those were tier one, four in the 40 to 49 age group. So again, it's trying to break down not just the rate of this condition or the, the severe uh, outcomes of, of, of death and fatalities, which have again been very low in Australia due to you know, high recognition and, and management, but the, the severity and then potential for, for longer term um, outcomes. But yeah, the, the TGA do now clearly outline that by, by age range. Mm-hmm. I would love that link to the website so I can attach it to your podcast, Nigel. Yeah, and I'll send that through. No problems, David. Okay, because I think as GPs, we need to have these sorts of numbers under our belt as we speak to some patients who might be concerned. Yes, of course. Now, let's look at a GP who is pretty much just seen a patient with a headache, hasn't settled with the usual paracetamol, and probably, let's just say, you know, about two weeks mm. from the first shot of the AstraZeneca vaccine. What should we do? Are there any kind of a clinical guidance or any protocols that we might have to follow? So there are some protocols in development, and I know the Health Pathways um, is one tool that GPs are using. So I know um, Scott Parsons here in Melbourne with the Northwest PHN is, is developing a, a um, health pathway to help you know, with this discussion for GP. So I think there's lots of resources that will be coming to help with that discussion. I think we've touched base on some of them, some of the thrombosis and the, you know, locations and the symptoms that, and that may, you know, be seen with that. And then obviously the window in the vaccine, but then also obviously your clinical examination. So looking for some of those more specific features or alternate causes of, of that headache or abdominal pain, for example, which as you mentioned, uh, are common. So I think a bit of a, a thought and a matrix of how you can you know, approach that clinical scenario is helpful. Then the next step is then thinking about some of the investigations, because as I mentioned, the thrombocytopenia may not show on the physical examination. This platelet activation is, is the trigger, in, we believe, in, in TTS, in this immune-mediated um, adverse event of special interest. So um, the platelet count you know, initially may not be below 150, which is, is the cutoff of thrombocytopenia. So you need to obviously do a full blood count uh, and then a D-dimer, which is the other test for this condition is markedly elevated in confirmed cases. It's over five times the upper limit of normal. So they're the two main baseline blood tests that are required, but they need to be so obviously obtained in a, in a timely way. So sort of four to six hours be the window. You want to get that result back to know if you need to send them for further evaluation. If there's obviously red flags or more concerns clinically, then they then need to be sent to an emergency department and the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine has also got a guidelines of, of how they um, recommend um, their emergency, you know, department um, staff manage uh, possible cases, you know, th- through their flow. So I think it's really important to have that, you know, important link between primary care and emergency departments as required for this condition, particularly within that window um, of the four to thirty out to forty-two days post the vaccine. Now, you mentioned a very important uh, word there, Nigel. It's called red flags. So what constitute a, a red flags for GPs so that we can really uh, act uh, with a degree of urgency? So I think if you know your you know, patient well and it's an unusual headache, it's something that's been prevalent to us. Obviously, a lot of people have lots of patients with migraines or other you know, headaches, but if it's a different headache to what they normally have or if they've never had headaches before, 
and they have this headache that comes on and is unusual and is persistent, which is not settling with simple analgesia. So I think that's, while it's not a red flag clinical sign, I think that's one of the key things in terms of the, the CVST, which I mentioned can be a hard diagnosis to, to pick up early on clinically. And then obviously there's more, you know, focal signs in terms of um, if things are progressing. So they have blurred vision or um, dysarthria problems with their speech or, or mental state. And obviously, you know, right to the end of, of seizures where obviously people would call an ambulance and, and go to the emergency department. So I think it's about being yeah, aware of your patients in terms of those symptoms and also on your examination uh, or history, more sort of red fans of neurological conditions, um, the abdominal uh, pain can obviously be a bit more difficult, but again, this clot can impact on the gut to the level of causing ischemia in the bowel. And there have been cases uh, internationally where they've had to have surgery to to lose part of bowel because of that ischemia. So it can really progress to more severe outcomes in those tier one unusual cases. So you know that's why we want to try and identify these cases as early as possible. So our um, hospital hematology colleagues can you know institute the the appropriate management to try and minimise morbidity associated with uh, TTS. In giving us a sense of how quickly things progress, you know, going from, say, a headache to having focal signs, uh, do we have a time frame by which things can move? Is it measured in hours or days? Yeah, so the recommendation that's come out again, the Hematology Society or from both Society of Australia called FANS, T-H-A-N-Z is, is their name, and Hugh and Tran and Vivian Chen and, and leaders of that group have, have also written NIGHT's guide, guidelines, which... Um, can, can be circulated, but they're recommending sort of 24 to 48 hours, um, you repeat tests or repeat follow-up. So as I mentioned before, it's possible that the platelets won't be below 150 on that very first test, but if they had an ongoing headache, for example, that wasn't still settling despite a normal platelet count and D-dimer um, in that first um, assessment, whether it's at the GP or primary care, if those symptoms are ongoing 24, 48 hours later, we'd recommend to repeat you know, clinical review and then repeat the blood tests. If you have those two blood tests completely normal within 24, 48 hours, the chance of having um, this rare syndrome is, is markedly decreased. So yeah, that uh, review within sort of one to two days, we think is, is a really helpful point for GPs to be aware of. Now, that is a very important clinical message to us, Nigel. So let me try and see if I can get it right. If a patient comes with unusual abdominal pain or a headache does, doesn't seem to settle as it used to, or a headache in a person who doesn't get one, within that time frame of having the first shot, that's within, what, three to 30 days, one of the things we do, of course, is examine them. The likelihood is that we won't find too much the first time around. And then we do a D-dimer and also um, a full blood count looking at the platelets what we're looking for is a platelet count under 150 and looking for a D-dimer greater than five times the upper limit of normal. And it is likely that maybe the first time around, not much happens. But all these patients should really come back within 24, 48 hours to have a clinical assessment and another blood test. What you're saying is if both tests are normal, then the chance of TTS is markedly decreased. Is that right? You know, that's right. So I think, yeah, the, the key take-home message is that um, just that one-off assessment can't necessarily fully exclude the condition. So that's right. If, if the first tests are normal, but the symptoms are ongoing and things are persisting, then that review, you know, within that sort of 24 to 48 hours is, is really important. So I think that's right. Sort of having that, that close follow-up of your patients, um, you know, within that, that day is really helpful. Because as I mentioned before, the, 
you know, we want to pick up these cases and then institute appropriate management. And, and again, some patients may present to emergency department with the similar symptoms and the emergencies aren't so well set up to review them again within that 24 hours. So sending them back to their primary care physician with a letter um, describing, you know, what happened in the ED and, and the GP then follow up, I think is, as I mentioned before, good sort of, you know, working with our um, primary care and emergency department colleagues. I, I just sounds like uh, every patient who comes uh, with a headache or tummy pain after the shots should always be just booked in for a review at the GP practice. It just sounds like good practice now. Now, Nigel, what happens if we do in fact find uh, thrombocytopenia or a huge uh, D-dimer and we send them off to hospital emergency? What happens to them? So once they get there, as, as I mentioned, there is a, a um, guideline we can share from, from ASEM, from the Emergency um, College, which um, will be helpful. And then FANS, which is the Haematology Society, have a, a clearer logarithm of treatment. So I think within the hospital side, they're clearly very aware of this condition and, and that FANS group has really you know, nationally been able to follow and manage all of these cases. The, the key thing is that um, they wouldn't, they'll look further for the thrombosis. So where is the site of the thrombosis? So if it was in the brain or CVST, you need a CT venogram or an, an MRI looking more closely at the, at the vessels. So you may need detailed tests and you may need um, also a venogram, CT venogram of the abdomen if you think there's splanchnic clots. So these things that might be a bit harder to pick up in terms of the uh, radiology. And then if they do, I'd, once I identify the clots and then confirm the low platelets, they may go on to, to do the antibody test, which is the PF4 antibody, which is the antiplatelet uh, antibody, which is a specialized test requested by the hematologist. And then in terms of treatment, they'll not give heparin. So it's non-heparinoid therapy in terms of the anticoagulation. And depending on the severity and the location, they'll also consider intravenous immunoglobulin to try and help you know, switch off this process. And um, our Canadian colleagues actually recently published in the New England Journal um, some intensive care cases where they've given intravenous immunoglobulin and showed the impact of that. So there are some really important strategies that the haematologists are leading to try and minimise the morbidity and mortality of, of TTS once it is confirmed. Any idea of the Australian figures at the moment? I know we have certain numbers, about 58. How many were treated and had resolution and how many did badly? Yeah, so this is a really good question and something we're trying to you know, ascertain more detail nationally. And as, as I mentioned, I work at SAFIC based at NCRI, the, the vaccine safety group. So we're involved in the Victorian follow-up of cases. And you're right that there's currently 60 cases, um, 29 men and 31 women. 13 of those have needed to be intensive care and um, majority obviously in, in hospital and a few still in hospital. But the length of stay and the Morbidity is something that we're trying to understand in, in more detail. There have been two deaths to date with, with the central venous sinus thrombosis and, and white broader clots because um, it can be in the brain and then spread to other parts of the body can also have clots at the same time in these more severe tier ones. So there have been two fatalities, unfortunately. There have been some serious neurological you know, outcomes, as I mentioned, with, with the CVST can have secondary strokes related to that and also some of the abdominal um, cases I mentioned can require surgery. So, you know, it's really about trying to establish a, a way we can follow up these cases more systematically and understand the morbidity of the condition and also obviously the, the mental health impacts and others that have been impacted by this diagnosis. So um, majority are being treated and, and recover and leaving hospital, but we need to understand better the medium to longer term outcomes. Uh, that segues well into a um, Sydney Morning Herald article. Uh, I'll quote, 
but an important factor for the group's decision was the long-term harm that will be experienced by some of the 58 people who experienced the condition. And it goes on to say that a number of those individuals will have long-term complications as a result of these events. Are they referring to um, the sequelae of strokes and abdominal surgery, or are there things that GPs need to know about? So as I mentioned, I think it's it's really is those those tier one um, cases are the ones that you know have had the main um, morbidity uh, at the moment. So in terms of those sixty cases, a third to date, or twenty three of the cases have been tier one, and, and will have had um, you know obviously quite prolonged hospitalisation and, and time where things they've needed you know support and care. But I think from the GP perspective, it's important to know that they've had you know, appropriate therapies have been instituted and Australia has really been leading the identification and through the FANS group, the management of this condition. So it's really important to get that early identification and try and minimise um, the morbidity. But, you know, just when we talk about numbers or counts or number of deaths, you don't really get a full feel for a, a syndrome. So I think it's mm -hmm. trying to understand, you know, the complexity, not just the rates. That's why I think it's really pleasing that the, the TGA report now includes this more you know, nuanced detail in terms of the, the condition and there's lots of work happening to try and, you know, bring all that together. I guess as a GP, the two things that crosses my mind is if one of my patients were uh, one of the ones with the T1 cases, uh, both, uh, say, um, in, the, in the brain and in the gut, would I expect that the patient may have permanent brain damage in, in some cases and therefore learn to look after them like someone who has had stroke? And what sorts of things should I as a GP think about and care about for patients who might have had a splenic uh, clot? So I think we are also organising some follow-up for these patients. So in Victoria, we do have the Victorian Specialised Immunisation Services. So we have some clinical facility, both through the haematologists and through our infectious diseases, other colleagues around immunisation to help follow up. Um, those that have had an adverse event, not, not just TTS, but also other adverse events that have been described, including obviously allergy and other things. So there's a process for, for follow-up um, medically. Obviously some, if they have been neurological, will need some rehab. You know, others, if there are some gut issues, may also need follow-up and, and things. So I think it's really about communication, isn't it, between the, the discharge summary from the hospital about the outcome for that individual patient. If you are there treating GP, who are the support people that are involved in their um, care and then also as I mentioned before some of the mental health you know impacts that may also come from both that admission and, and what's happened so I think it's really about that multidisciplinary team you know communicating and, and feeding that back to the GP who's such an important person in that um, you know in their ongoing care and, and management. I cannot second that any more than you know this is hugely important to keep our channels uh, very clear very open and very transparent so we know how to manage these patients. So Nigel, what if we have a patient who indeed has, has a case of TDS? How, how do we report a case like this? So in terms of um, reporting, obviously with the, the TTS, we have quite a few systems, you know, at the moment in terms of early identification. So again, I can send the link of the national numbers. We tend to report these adverse events through your state-based system. So there's a sort of a, a website that has the different links for the numbers and emails in Victoria. It's SAFIC, the Victorian Vaccine Safety Service. Mm -hmm. um, those reports are then handled. They feed that through to the TGA, who obviously very closely monitoring all of these um, cases and giving a weekly report. 
up on their website and obviously feeding that through, you know, government in terms of decisions with the program. So um, in terms of TTS, yeah, there's a really clear pathway of feeding that back through. So we can provide that link so GPs know how to report a case if they have one or if they've got some abnormal results, they're not quite sure how to handle. It may not be quite, you know, the low platelets or the D-dimer, not quite that five times upper limit of normal. We can provide some resources of who they might contact to discuss those issues if they, they do arise. I think those sorts of uh, links are hugely important. And do you have other resources or information or links uh, that can be very helpful for GPs? And if so, speak about it briefly and send us the link as well. Yeah, thanks, David. So we also um, at MCRI have uh, a group called the Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre. We've run webinars on TTS when it first emerged and have um, a lot of expertise in terms of adverse event reporting and then also information. So a lot of the um, things that I've touched on today, we'll, we'll have links to those resources up on our Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre or MVEC uh, websites. And again, we'll forward through the link to you. That's really important. Thank you so much, Nigel. And now, do you have any final messages to our GP listeners. No, thanks, David. I think the final message is, as I alluded to at the start, it's really about um, supporting primary care in terms of their patients who do present in that window, you know, four to 30 days following immunisation with um, some symptoms, which may, as I mentioned, be unusual headache or abdominal pain, and just a bit of a, a guidance around how they might, you know, handle that referral, how they might think about um, some of the clinical features, which might be a bit different to usual uh, as well as the um, investigations that might be indicated to try and you know, look into this condition and the important follow-up that, that you mentioned, David. So I think, yeah, really trying to support our primary care uh, colleagues in identification and, and management of this rare condition if they, they do see a case. Nigel, I thank you for giving us all this information, the links and the resources, and actually for giving us as GPs a way forward and how to think through this, uh, because clearly it's both rare but it's also very topical at the moment. No, thanks, David. I appreciate the, the time to share this information. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.